Hello and welcome back to the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Sotak Andrei, and this is a very special episode for me. When I started out this journey in 2017, I, um, I had a lot of goals for this podcast, among which was um, to talk with some of the people I uh, highly respect and I very much look up to. And this episode is... Um, realization of that um, goal or at least um, uh, with one of those people and I'm talking about Lyle McDonald if you don't know who he is then boy you have a lot of uh, catching up to do but basically I came across Lyle years ago uh, circa 2012-13 something like that Um, I think it was 12 and I learned a lot from him I um as you will hear during the episode, I also had some disagreements with him years down the line. And he, online for sure, isn't the easiest uh, guy to deal with. He has some uh, behavior issue that he is very much so aware of. However, in person, meaning when we talk uh, during the podcast, he's super nice, super friendly. And it was a pleasure to speak with him. As you will hear at the beginning of the episode, I kind of made a mistake. I wanted to bring up bring up a topic just for a couple of brief minutes and we ended up staying for over 30 minutes on it which again is a mistake by by me is a mistake on my end I did not anticipate this and then uh, we had to cut the episode short and we didn't have time to cover all the topics I wanted to discuss however promise me that if you guys will be nice and you will share this episode with a lot of friends and we get like 50,000 downloads Okay, I'm kidding. But for real, um, he promised that he would come back for a part two and I will make sure to be more um, organized and um, more careful with our time management this time around. Uh, But until that happens, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. We talked about um, the low-carb versus low-fat study that Christopher Gardner and his team conducted a year ago because this episode was recorded actually about a year ago. And I just kept postponing it for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, but here it is. And then we dove into the main topic that I wanted to address, which was female physiology um, and setting up a female's diet. I I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, because I really, again, this was a dream come true for me. And uh, yeah, I'm fanboying a bit over here. But um, if you know who Lyle is and you know how much he did for our industry, how much he did for me personally, for my own education, my own development as a as a lifter and now as a coach and uh, wannabe educator, I guess, then you would know how why I say all of these things. So without uh, further rambling, enjoy the episode with Lyle McDonald. Lyle McDonald, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an awesome pleasure and honor to have you on. It's uh, Like I said, I uh, you were one of the people I've been most looking forward to. And... Um, this is actually uh, one that I've been looking forward to uh, for a long while, and it's great that it ha- it's finally happening. Well, cool. I'm very glad to be here. So instead of the usual introduction, because I'm sure um, countless people, uh, you've told that countless of times, I want to lead with something else. Um, I'm curious, have you seen that? I'm sure you've seen the recently published Diet Fits, Low Carb, Low Fat Study by Christopher Gardner, and I'm curious on your take on I, it. I actually, and, uh, it, it, it came up in my in the Facebook group, and I actually haven't had time to look at it yet, so I, I can't, I don't have an opinion on it. I, I anticipate 
Um, I can probably pull it up. Uh, um, so I actually, I actually haven't had a chance. Who wrote it? Christopher Gardner. Okay. Examine.com has a good uh, write-up on it. If you. Oh, okay. uh, let's see. Yeah, it looks like this one. Here we go. Um, okay, February twenty. Yeah, this must be the new one. The diet fits randomized clinical study. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't actually surprise me. Like, you know, my, you, you especially the, I think the fact, you know, the, just again, looking at the key points in the abstract, so I'm not getting into too many details with this. Most of the studies that show, you know, a big difference in, in results, like even weight loss, tend to be shorter term, right? There's, there's this quick, quick water loss that happens on low-carb diets, and it tends to, you know, give sort of this, this immediate, uh, early advantage, but the long-term studies is like, yeah, it's maybe a kilo. You know, this showed what you know half a kilo difference. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, I guess really kind of what the interesting thing is was you know um, something to do with insulin, you know, diet genotype. Because there's been a couple of studies, and it's very mixed. You know, one I reported on, good God, probably over a decade ago, showed that you know for people that had that basically were insulin resistant, did better with lower carbs, and people that were more insulin sensitive did better with higher carbs. And the difference is pretty significant, but it I don't know that it was ever replicated. And you know, they they suggested it was an interaction with genotype and I think the Fox gene or whatever they were looking at at the time. And um, you know, the problem with all these, a lot of these is when they're they're free living, there's always the adherence issue. You know, I, I do think overall people with insulin resistance tend to just feel better and, and be happier on lower carb diets and but clearly this shows that it kind of doesn't matter. Um, one thing yeah. I will note, this is something I've talked about, and again, I haven't looked into the details of the study. Frequently when they, they give, you know, higher carb, low fat diets in research, they have people, um, you know, eating low glycemic index, very unrefined carbohydrates. And honestly, that's not really um, what people eat in the real world. Um, I'm also just like, I'm skimming it right now. And it says, you know, at 12 months, <clears throat> the, the diet difference is 48% versus 30% for carbs. That's really not that big of a difference. Like, I'm, I'm not really shocked that the results weren't that different. You know, 29 versus 45% for fat. 20 versus 23% for protein. Um, like, it's not, I, I think it's kind of disingenuous to call this, you know, yeah, it's low fat versus low carb, but it's just kind of two different lowered carb diets. You know, I'm, I'm sure most of the, the keto zealots, the very low carb zealots would see this and go, oh, you know, 30% carbs is still, they weren't fat adapted and it wasn't ketogenic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the, the same old thing that they always kind of talk about. It's like, well, it wasn't truly ketogenic, well, whatever. Um, but it's, I don't know, this, this seems like a pretty narrow comparison, um, but it just kind of points out, you know, and, and what's funny, you know, I've been saying this, I want to say since the 90s, at least since the early 2000s, you know, what's the best diet? Eh, the one people will stick to. And honestly, when you get down to it, protein is really the key driver. You know, I've been I've been on about this for years and years and years. Like, once protein is set, the rest of it is just adherence. I mean, there's context if you're training and not training and insulin sensitive versus insulin resistant or whatever. But really, it's like get enough protein, lift weights find what you can adhere to and that that's kind of what it comes down to even if people don't want to hear that 
Yeah, actually, that's why <laughs> the reason why I wanted to ask you because I've seen some comments and those were the comments like oh, you mentioned sure. exactly. Always. But that wasn't a truly ketogenic diet, and if they they were on whatever thirty grams of carbs or less, the result would have been different. And I asked them, how do you think they would have been different? What magic could have the right ketogenic state accomplished? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean that's like, and that's whenever I get into any debate over any aspect of key and, and make no mistake for people, anybody listening who doesn't know who I am my first book was solely on low carbohydrate very low carbohydrate ketogenic diets it's 325 of the most boring pages you'll ever read like I am neither pro nor anti ketogenic diets they have their roles they have their purposes I am against zealotry I am against the whether it's the keto zealots, the intermittent fasting zealots, I don't really care when people decide that there's this ideology that is the one true way and dismiss anything that contradicts. That's when I have, so don't hear anything I say being like anti-ketogenic per se, it's anti-ketogenic followers. It's the people involved. So, you know, so they've been pushing this thing for, oh, fat adaptation for exercise performance. All right, cool. They've been trying to do this for 30 years, right? They've been looking at fat adaptation for sports for at least 20 and possibly 30 years. And it's either had no benefit or it's harmful outside of obese people doing nothing but walking. Like if you're doing low intensity, extra nothing, it's fine. And if you're doing anything that requires, it's been shown to impair sprinting performance, you know, at, at best it's neutral and at worst it's negative. And you point out all these studies and they go, well, they weren't long enough. They, well, they weren't, if they'd been fat adapted. Okay. And I, I got an argument a couple years ago with someone in my group and he's, I mean, he's like, these studies were all too short. I go, fine. How long does it need to be? He goes, at least six weeks. So I posted up a study that was six weeks long that said it still hurt. No, it still wasn't long enough. All right, I'm done. Like, if you're just going to play this little game where you're going to move the goalposts, like, because they won't ever say ahead, ahead of time how long it needs to be. It's only after the fact that they decide, well, and it's like, all right, fine. Where are all the keto-adapted elite performers winning gold medals? They're only in your imagination because they don't exist. <laughs> That's the thing. Everyone's like, I know a guy who is keto and he's a distance runner. Okay, what's he won? Well, he's just a recreational runner. Fantastic. Go to fucking town. Like, we're not talking. I don't I don't give a crap. I don't give a crap about recreational athletes. I mean, don't not what I mean, but if you're going to argue that the diet is superior, where are the elite performers doing this? Because trust me, it's been tried and it doesn't work. If you're doing ultra endurance, pissing around at four miles, you know, ultra endurance runners run at four and a half miles an hour. It is a brisk walk. Genuinely, watch those guys run a hundred kilometer race. They are not even running. They're barely picking. They're 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 j slowly, briskly jogging, walking at four and a half, you know, miles an hour, whatever that is, ten kilometers an hour. It's 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 a piss ass intensity. Yeah, great. If that's all you're gonna do, go to town, burn fat all day every day. And if you actually want to race and have sprints and speed like real sports, doesn't work. But they do the same thing with the diet studies. And, you know, the studies will show that, oh, at the year mark, the keto group hasn't really, they, they've, they're about the same point. And they go, well, it's because they weren't following the diet anymore. And frequently that's true. Frequently what started as 50 grams a day or less, they're now eating more than that. But that also makes the point. It's not sustainable for most people. So who cares? Or they're like, well, you know, there's still a kilo difference 
two whole pounds, whoop-de-doo. Like, we're talking about obesity treatment. A kilo difference doesn't matter. That, that is nothing to hang a diet success on, right? That is not a metabolic advantage. That is noise when you're talking about someone who weighs 140 kilos at 45% body fat. Like, that is an insignificant value. Um, you know, even the, the Kevin Hall study that the nobody wanted, nobody wanted, you know, the most meticulous study ever done. And what it did, it did, what was it, two weeks of high carbs, low fat, and then it did two weeks, it switched into ketogenic diet, and during the keto diet, their metabolic rate went up. Hooray, metabolic advantage. It was 100 calories a day for 10 days. So they burned a whopping 1,000 extra calories. Less than one-third of a pound of fat. That is the metabolic advantage that you want to hang this diet success on? Please. Like, how, like, to dig that deeply out of desperation to support your, like, just go, hey, it's a diet that it's easier for me to adhere to. I got, no, I got no issue with that, right? Even when, like, the zone in 30-30-30, like, you're too young to even remember this. This is, this, is, this is the 90s when some of this first started. Barry Sears had the zone, and it was 30% protein, 40% carbs, 30% fat, and it was just the most nonsensical gibberish about icosanoids and insulin-to-glucagon ratios and how this puts you in the fat-burning zone. And he said, you know, calorie restriction doesn't work. And then when you mathed it out, men ended up at 1,200 calories a day. And women, no wonder you lose fat. Like, no, no wonder. And there was just, just gibberish. It was just this made-up science. And it got dismissed. If he'd simply said, hey, this is a diet that provides sufficient protein, moderates carb intake, and make sure you get enough dietary fat to stay full so you can adhere to it? Well, that's that's true. And that, that would have been a completely rational explanation of that diet. But he had to science it up so hard that he went down the rabbit hole and lost the plot. And the same thing with the keto. If they were just, like, again, for people who are insulin resistant, for people that are, you know, quote-unquote carbohydrate addicts who... And I used to be one of them, right? I got interested in ketogenic diets and cyclical ketogenic diets because moderating my carb intake was very hard. If you are a carb person, meaning you find that eating carbs makes you eat more carbs, well, ketogenic diets are great. You don't get to eat any. As long as I don't have the first piece of bread, I'm fine. And you know, I'm sure you might be like that. I know you know people like that. We all do. <clears throat> the first piece, so if it's off limits, right, if it's what's called a bright line boundary in addiction research that you just don't get any, I could do that. Then, of course, on the carb loads, I got to do all the carbs. Well, I could do that, too. It worked for me because I could stick to it. And for a lot of people, ketogenic diets or very low-carbohydrate diets remove the problem foods. And if you're insulin-resistant, you get, you know, better blood sugars, yada, yada, yada. Really the big thing, and there's a, a guy, I want to say Wester Terp Plantenga, years ago who said, you know, the, the advantage of low-carb diets, it's not the low carbs. It's the higher protein. Well, Yeah. <laughs> Protein is the most, you know, hunger-blunting nutrient, satiating, maintains blood sugar, prevents lean body mass loss. What is baffling to me, right, because they do the studies that are not controlled, and in the, the low-carb groups, people are end up eating more protein, and that's why they succeed. Somehow the low-carb keto zealots cannot understand that high-protein and low-carbohydrate are A, not synonyms, and B, not mutually exclusive, like this idea that if you eat carbs, you can't eat sufficient protein, that seems to escape them. The paleo people do the same thing, and I don't, I don't quite get that. I can eat high protein 
and eat carbs, or I can eat high protein and not eat carbs. But usually the, the big benefit of, of low-carb diets on top of removing the trigger foods, if you're not controlling things, is it just makes you eat enough protein. And that's what makes the diet work. But you can do that in the context of a carb-based diet too. So yeah, so the zealots will always find some way to dismiss anything. It, and it's funny, if the study, if a flawed study supports them, oh, they'll be happy to jump on that. But anything that doesn't will be, they'll find a way. Um, big debate after the Kevin Hall study came out. There's a guy named Ansi Mananen in the industry. And, and you know, so the Kevin Hall study, and again, this was one of the most meticulously done studies, metabolic ward, every calorie accounted for, wasn't, you know, it, it couldn't have been more, more well done. And Ansi Mananen, who I've known for years, and he's a very much a low-carb zealot, just came out and he was just arguing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and I just, he kept ignoring my points. And then he finally said, well, the definitive study has not been done. And I said, all right, well, then I have a question. If the definitive study against low-carb diets has not been done, why are you so happy using these studies to say that it's the best diet? Because you can't have it both ways, right? If the definitive study is, he's happy to use the research that says it's better. But if suddenly when the most meticulously done study comes out that says it's not, oh, well, the definitive study hasn't been done. And that's just intellectually disingenuous. The bulk of the studies support one conclusion. The controlled studies, that it's higher protein intake and adherence. But they don't want to hear that, and they're never going to, and that's fine. There were two aspects I found interesting about this particular study. One was, like you said, uh, they uh, offered, uh, I guess, a diet consultation, um, something like that, diet support, and uh, they suggested eating only unrefined foods, which is obviously a good idea. And um, the second was that they had, for like two months, they had to follow the strict low-carb versus low-fat um, approach and then they told them to increase by five to ten grams per day until they found it sustainable, which oh, okay. is again uh, yeah. a different approach. So that's why the values were higher. Sure. Although actually, if if you go back and read Atkins, the doc, original Doctor Atkins book, and this was like the seventies, it was really the the first time low carb diets really entered the mainstream populate. He he actually, uh, from memory, he recommended a very similar thing, like. And, and, and as much as he got wrong in that book, and he got a lot wrong because the, the data in the 60s and 70s was just terrible, is, you know, he, he even acknowledged that for people, if you have a quote-unquote, you know, broken metabolism, and he, he was, they didn't know, you know, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance was not a defined thing. This was like the early 1970s. But he said, you know, sometimes if you have an unbalanced metabolism, you have to use an unbalanced diet to fix that. And I don't actually disagree with that at a conceptual level in just, in, in a, you know, not in a specific sense, but just conceptually. If you've got a, you know, we know that the obese tend to run too heavily on carbs. Their muscle glycogen is full. They become metabolically inflexible. In that case, removing all their carbs may be the best way to address those factors initially. And I remember tangentially a paper I read years and years and years ago that everyone I don't think anyone but me ever saw, but it made the point that the diet you follow to lose weight in the sense of like macronutrient composition does not have to be the diet you use to maintain. And I think that's really a point that's been very much lost. There's this idea that, oh, if you go keto to lose weight, you got to stay keto forever. Well, why? And it'd be like saying, well, since you have to eat 1,600 calories a day to lose weight, you have to eat. Well, no, you're going to have to eat less than before. But when you go to maintenance, you get to eat more calories. 
by definition because you're no longer in active weight loss. Well, what's different? If you have to go to zero carbs to control your, your food intake to lose weight and become more insulin sensitive and, you know, metabolic flip, blah, 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 blah. Where is it written that you must do that to maintain? If you're able to add 100 grams of carbs back to make the diet sustainable, to give yourself the food flexibility, as Eric Helms likes to refer to it, and he, and he recommended that. You know, he, he believed in a critical carbohydrate threshold, and he was focusing on body weight. They didn't know from body composition. You know, all he knew was that, oh, cut carbs, you lose weight, and add carbs, and eventually you start gaining weight. But he said, yeah, you add carbs back until you start regaining weight, and then that's your personal critical carbohydrate threshold. I got no real problem with that in, again, in a conceptual sense. So really what they're doing in this study, it sounds like, is more of what he originally recommended. <clears throat> was use it to get to your to lose the weight and now you know because it does this is the other thing about weight loss studies everybody can lose weight somebody hearing this will disagree with me in these studies everyone loses some amount of weight usually long-term maintenance is really the big problem it has been for decades we know how to get people to lose weight we are bad at getting them to keep it off long term and unsustainability of a diet is a big part of that if you pick a diet that you, by definition, can't stick to forever, you fail. So giving this option to go, ah, now we re-increase, reintroduce foods within, you know, your own personal limits and triggers and et cetera, et cetera, <clears throat> to make it long-term sustainable, well, great. That's actually a better approach than thinking it must remain keto forever. Because I bet if they told them, like the, the keto zealots who said to you it would have worked better or whatever, I would argue the opposite, because if they'd force the low-carb people to stay below 50 grams a day, they probably would have just stopped completely by allowing them to increase their carbohydrate intake to a sustainable level. I bet they succeeded more. I bet they were had more success than they otherwise would have had in the long term, and that's what really matters. Yeah, fine. Maybe they would have been half a kilo lighter for a few more months till they cracked completely and went to the bread store. But, you know, I remember Eric Helms told me a paper I had missed, and they put groups on two, two groups on the same diet, but one group could eat bread and the other couldn't. That was the only difference. The group that couldn't eat bread, well, guess what they craved? Bread, huh? Funny, right? And that's the problem with these extremely, again, in the short term, you know, I've written my rapid fat loss handbook. Like, yeah, it's, it's very restrictive. However, I also talk for pages Here's what you do when you're done. You start adding foods back to the base of what I already have you eating to make it long-term sustainable. So that's all. What, what these people were doing, what this study does actually is much more logical than what would have been what most would think. Yeah, they, um, they had a pretty low um, dropout rate, which was unusual for a study of this magnitude. Well, and something else I would I would add that that you mentioned, you know, you said they had nutritional counseling, and it, honestly, and I'm not I'm not really a behavioral guy. I'll I'll be honest, it's something that I I tended to skirt very early in my career. It just it wasn't interesting to me. I was interested in the physiology and the nutrition and, and that stuff, but but I've looked I've looked into it more as I've I've gotten older, and you know, a lot of what they're finding is you know having the weekly counseling, getting text feedback, you know, getting text messages, getting these regular reminders, like that's probably a big part of why both groups did as well as they did, right? It's so too many studies give them like, here's the diet, bye-bye, see you in three months. 
having those weekly sessions, having, you know, the, the follow-ups, that's turning out to play a really, really, really large role. And like in the U.S., for example, we have a, a, a weight loss group called Weight Watchers. And I don't know, you know, um, I'm an ugly American. I know what we've got in this country and the rest of the world I don't know much about. And, um, but, you know, one of the Weight Watchers, among other elements, they have weekly weigh-ins. They have weekly support groups. It gives accountability. It gives support. It gives feedback. It, it, it's a way of like, if you know... Well, gee, on Friday, I have to go talk to somebody or talk to a group of my peers or, you know, a doctor or whatever it is, or dietitian, and talk about what I did this week, you're automatically more focused. The, like I said, the text reminders, there's a paper I came across uh, last year sometime, and it was something like an aggressive diet intervention, and it was diet, exercise, lifestyle counseling, weekly meetings with a dietitian. I think they had on appetite suppressants. They were given text follow-ups. Like they just threw everything at these people. And it worked stunningly because they were addressing everything from diet, lifestyle, neurochemistry, behavioral aspect, text reminders. That's going to be really important going forwards. I, I think there's going to be some technological advancements that's going to go a long way because just getting that weekly or that daily text reminder, it has a psychological priming effect, just like morning weigh-ins or getting on the scale has been shown to improve people's uh, adoption of health habits. It's an immediate reminder. It puts it at the forefront of your mind. I am trying to make these changes as opposed to people who just ignore it and get thrown off. So I think that I think that stuff is going to become is going to be shown to be really profoundly powerful. I don't know if you've seen it. There was a guy who lost weight and uh, he had a friend of him text him every day you fat fuck <laughs> and or something like that. And I'm not suggesting that we should be shaming people. It's just that some people react to different things and uh, even in this study, the inter-individual difference was huge. I mean, there were people who lost like 30 kilograms, so like 80 pounds, and there were people who gained like 25. <laughs> yeah, and that's and that is real common with studies for various reasons um, that that people just you know. And this is also the, one of the big issues with looking at averages, or you know, they look at group means. You tend to lose the the individual um, results. There was, <laughs> this was years ago, another one of my favorite low-carb zealot studies, and they took obese adolescents, and they put one group on high carbs, and they put another group on low carbs, and the difference in average weight loss was something staggering. It was like 15 kilos between groups. Like, it was just, just and of course, the low-carb people went, went, you know, berserk over this. The thing was that it was one of these rare studies that presented the individual results, and it was really interesting because, you you know, because they were like, oh, see, metabolic advantage and this and that and the other. You looked at the individual results for the, like, the low-carb group, and the results were anywhere from, like, 30 kilo loss to, like, one kilo loss. And I was like, okay, well, if this diet's so magic, what happened to the people who, what happened to that kid who only lost one kilo, right? What, what? What was it just not, or there's, I think there were a couple that gained weight, and it's like, oh, did the magic just fail for them? Or is there, is there something else going on? Like, is there a different, you know, is there another reason why some of these kids lost and some didn't? It's not, and it basically came down to adherence. But what was more interesting was when you looked at the data for the low-carb versus the low-fat group, the low-carb group had these three outliers, had these three kids who just lost an ungodly amount of weight like 30 or 40, whatever the numbers were, it's been a long time. And if you actually took those three data points out, 
everybody else was the same. Like if you took those three out, the basically that big big apparent difference completely goes away because the numbers were almost like the the graph looks almost identical. And it's like right. So what have we proven? This is not proven that low carb diets have this 15 kilo advantage. It's proved that occasionally you see these freak outlier results that completely throw the numbers off. Because if you look at the individual, you need to explain to me why one kid in the low carb group only lost a kilo. There were kids in the high carb group, in the low fat group that lost 15 kilos. Clearly there is no inherent advantage. There are individual advantages perhaps, there's perhaps more going on to this than just meets the eye. And like to your point, you know, there are individual differences in what people, what diet people prefer, what they can adhere to. Motivational uh, strategies is very key. And I, I think that's what you were getting at initially. There are people who respond very positively to negative feedback. And I actually once trained two, two individuals at the same time. One of them, she'd been a boxer. She was combative. To, to encourage her, I just go, I don't think you can lift that. And she'd be like, oh, you, you don't say, okay. And she'd start lifting and I could come back 30 minutes later and she'd still be working at it. She would never quit. But the other trainee had had a lot of bad experiences in the gym, a lot of failure. That approach would have destroyed her. I had to make sure she ended on success. And it took me about six months to finally get, you know, she needed a very different And in the diet world and exercise, it's true. Some people want to get beaten up. Some people want to get taken to the gym and just have, they, they join CrossFit and then, get injured. And then there's people that that will drive them away in the same way that some people will respond to, hey, you fat fuck, get it together. And there are other people that that will just shut them down. And I think even identifying those types of individual psychologies would go a long way towards figuring out what the best approach for somebody is. We are just now, finally, we're moving into this more integrated model of it's great and I've done it, I'm guilty of it myself. Fundamentally, eat less and exercise. Fundamentally, that's what you have to do. However, we're failing it. What's the best way to get any given individual to do that, to motivate them, to get them to adhere to it? Is it negative reinforcement? Is it small rewards? Is it, tech, do they need text reminders? Do they need a friend standing over them telling them to get their shit together? Um, accountability is a huge component of it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different stuff that I think will add to this model, and I th again, I think a lot of the technology, you know, we saw how, uh, you know, pre-commitment strategies and putting money into a, whatever, the websites that would give the money away if you failed to read your goal or, you know, gamifying stuff. I think we're going to reach a point that it will be ways of getting people to do the key behaviors more effectively for them. But it will have to be more individual. So I agree. Uh, we could talk about this for hours. So um, I want to get into the main topic. But just one final point I want to make is I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peterson's work. And he has a program called understandmyself.com. Essentially based on the big five personality traits. And people, um, these are subdivided into 10 categories. People could use these to essentially answer 100 questions and uh uh, discover their personality, I guess, and temperament and all that. And I'm sure it would help to, because obviously people are not really good at deciding what would be the best course of action for them. Right. And I find actually, I think a lot of people, well, there are some people that I think either by, by design or by accident do just kind of stumble into what's right for them. Um, I think a lot of people almost intuitively are drawn to exactly the opposite of what's right for them. 
Um, there's a, you know, there's a certain type of per, and I, you know, like, okay, so I, I, I have a, a legal requirement to, you know, mention my new book on women's physiology. And I do talk about this a little bit is, you know, there, there's a certain type of personality and I, I see it in men too, that they're just kind of like extreme high stressed, got to get results now. And they, you know, they already just run, they're tightly wound, high, high basal cortisol levels, and they're all automatically drawn to the most extreme approaches, which tend to be the worst for them, right? It's that, that even in training that classic hard gainer personality that, that already just doesn't have an optimized physiology and they just want intensity, 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 intensity. And they're just like overdriving their system when what they would do better with is a formal moderate approach. And you can't get them to do it, right? They're the person that jumps into 800 calories a day diet and two hours of cardio, and they get no weight loss, and they're either binging out of disinhibition or they're getting stress-related water retention, and that just makes them crank down even harder. And, like, what they need to be doing is, like, the exact opposite of what they think they should be doing. But their personality profile, the same personality profile that draws them to that approach, prevents them from realizing that something else... That, that that's counterintuitive would work better because I've had those clients that were just doing that. And I'm like, look, this isn't going to work. You need to eat more and or exercise less. And they go, but that can't possibly work. And I go, but what you're doing now isn't working. So why don't we just try it my way? But they won't do it. So I, I think, yeah, there's, there's, and then of course there's the people that anything works and they give everyone else. They don't understand why people have problems. They're just like, I don't get what the difficulty is because they can carb cycle, not carb cycle, cyclical, ICR, intermittent fasting. It doesn't matter what they do and it all works because they have that lucky physiology. So yeah, I think there's definitely, definitely something to that. Okay, so let's get into uh, female physique development. That was the topic I wanted to really discuss. <laughs> so just to kick things off, and I'm sure you've probably sick by this point of uh, going over through this, but just very quickly, can you go over the menstrual cycle, just to give a basic overview, and um, how the scale weight and hunger might fluctuate during those four weeks? Okay, so the, the basic menstrual cycle, which you know is really what differentiates women from men at a very fundamental level. Right up until puberty, little boys and little girls, about the same. Puberty hits, men get testosterone, more muscular, leaner, shoulders, uh, women start menstruating, and they have this, this monthly cycle that is considered to be 28 days. It's, it's really anywhere from 24 to 32 days. The day one is uh, defined just by convention, the first day of menstruation is day one. So the first day she starts bleeding. The cycle is divided essentially in half, uh, with the, the, the midpoint being ovulation. This is when the egg is released and, and she's at her most fertile. So the first half of the cycle is called the follicular phase. During this phase, estrogen is the dominant hormone. The follicle, where the egg comes from, is developing, hence the name. Uh, women tend to be insulin-sensitive. Um, they use most, more carbs than fat for fuel. Their hunger tends to be very well controlled, especially in the three or four days right before ovulation. And at that point, estrogen hits this big old spike. This is when the egg is released uh, so it can implant. Ovulation occurs. So estrogen comes back down. The second half of the cycle is called the luteal phase. And this is because the, the egg forms what's called the corpus luteum, just the, the lining. It's the, the, the body where the, the egg sits to... Um, 
for implantation uh, for the potentiality of pregnancy, it starts to produce progesterone. So into the second half of the cycle, progesterone starts to go up, hitting a peak about halfway through the, the second half of the cycle, so say day 21. Estrogen comes up as well, but not as high, and then they both sweep back down, and then the cycle starts over again. So in the second half of the cycle, women become more insulin resistant. They use less carbs for fuel, more fat. Their blood sugar becomes unstable. Metabolic rate goes up slightly, um, anywhere from 100 to 300 calories, depending on the woman. It's very, a lot of individual variants, but appetite goes up. And there tends to be cravings for sugar and fat specifically. Um, in the U.S., there's a cultural aspect of this. And in the U.S., the cravings tend to be for chocolate. In Spain, for example, it tends to be more for more savory protein-type foods. There's a big learning component. But there is an increase in hunger, appetite, and cravings specifically. And basically, this is all aimed towards pregnancy, right? First half of the cycle... Things are just kind of winding up for the egg to be released. Hunger is like so it can be well controlled. Kind of a trivial tidbit, uh, there was a, a, a theorist um, looking at animal research, and this has been shown in humans to be the case. A woman's hunger for food and drink is, is blunted in those three or four days before ovulation, and it's to increase her hunger for, shall we say, pleasures of the flesh. It's and, and this has been shown, actually, there's an inverse relationship between a woman's uh, like food hunger and her sex drive. So the lower her food hunger, the higher her sex drive and vice versa. So this, this does occur in humans. But then after ovulation, where there's the potential for her to become pregnant, the body, her body drives appetite and cravings to eat calories to store for the potentiality of pregnancy because that's where, that's, so that, that's kind of the overall pattern. First two weeks, hunger is controlled, insulin sensitive, burning carbs. Second half of the cycle, hunger tends to be increased, cravings are worse, um, if for the potential to try to store fat calories uh, in lower body fat in case pregnancy occurs. And if it doesn't, sheds the lining, menstruation starts, we start all over again. Great. So, um, what about scale weight? How does each week influence that? So, typically, a woman's scale weight will be lowest about, say, day three after menstruation starts. Um, and, and this will make more sense. It, it gets a little bit hard to describe because this is a cycle. So some of it is a response to like the previous cycles ending. So I'll walk all the way through to the beginning. So weight's typically the lowest, maybe day two or three of, of right after menstruation starts. It, body weight will tend to go up right before ovulation. And it's because this increase in estrogen causes her body to, to hold on to sodium more. And if she's on a high-sodium diet, her body weight will tend to go up. So lowest in week one will tend to go up slightly in week two, right before ovulation. will come back down in the first half of the luteal phase. It, it, it may not be as low as what you'd see in the first week, but it will be lower than in the second week. And then if women are going to experience the worst water retention, it'll be the, the fourth week of the cycle, what's called the late luteal phase. That's typically if, if she's going to suffer from premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is marked by uh, cramps, mood swings, uh, there's frequently in lack of coordination in the gym, uh, increased injury risk. There's a whole bunch of different things that occur. That's going to occur in week four, and that's when, when water retention and body weight tends to be the highest. And um, that's caused for a slightly different reason. Progesterone uh, tends to cause water loss. It, it binds at the aldosterone receptor, and that, that inhibits water retention. When progesterone drops, there's this kind of this rebound, and again, her body will hold on to more sodium. 
high sodium diets tend to make this worse, but the, the end result is that her body will tend to hold water uh, into that fourth week. So she, her body weight tends to spike. And then as she starts menstruating and everything kind of resets, it'll drop again. And again, day two or three, it'll kind of hit. That, that first week somewhere will be where it's, it's at its lowest point. Excellent. Uh, I hope this gives relief uh, to some women who <laughs> I had a client who was uh, pretty upset. She said her she was almost going to throw her scale out because it uh, went up. Well, and it's it's really frustrating for women who are dieting because you know you're, they're doing everything right. They're adhering to their diet. They're exercising, and suddenly their body weight, which may have been lower going down, will spike. And it's like, what do you mean my weight's a kilo or a kilo and a half higher? And then it'll go back down, and then it'll come back up, and it might be, you know, two kilos higher. A lot of women can retain a lot of weight during that fourth week of the cycle. And it's really, really frustrating. You know, men don't deal with this. Men, men are just the same every day. You know, they may see, you know, there's always variation day to day, but they don't see these weekly cycles. And because of this, <clears throat> you know, women really have to track their body weight, like, on a monthly uh time frame because it will the worst thing a woman can do in this regard in this regard disregards regards compare week one to week two or week two to week three or week three to week four or and god forbid you compare week one to week four because that's probably when you're going to see the lowest and the highest numbers because it will just make it look the numbers just look random what you end up having to do is compare week one to week one of the next month week two to week two week three to week three Honestly, women should probably just avoid the scale during week four period because it'll just drive – it drives – even women who know about body composition, who know that this stuff occurs, it still drives them nuts because it's just really frustrating to see your body weight and your clothes not fit and to feel bloated and heavy and all that that, that goes along with that. Um, but for women who are actively dieting or gaining or trying to gain muscle mass, like you have to compare the same week of the cycle each month. Otherwise, the numbers just become very, they're just not comparable. Those were the same recommendations I give, um, largely based on your work. So thank you for that. So if we start with fat loss, um, obviously the most important need, as much as some people hate to admit it, it's determining energy needs. So do you have some sort of a quick formula? For example, I like to start women off around 12 calories per pound, something like that when they are at a regular body weight so they are not they don't have a lot of weight to use and adjust from there the most accurate one would be obviously to track your food and whatnot but that's not really realistic for most people yeah so. and, and i still you know this is you know that that uh, sort of an old recommendation is track your food intake for two weeks is your weight stable well, almost by definition that won't work for a woman because her weight probably won't be stable for across the first two weeks of the cycle. It's going to go up in the second, and you can't really get a good, you know, again, you'd have to take a bunch of weeks and then compare week to week to week. So, you know, the, the old rule of thumb, and, you know, bodybuilders developed this ages ago, is, you know, about 10 to 12 calories a pound. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb. You know, if you look at most people with kind of an average daily activity level and, you know, if they're training, realistically, exercise just doesn't burn a lot of calories. It, it burns depressingly few when you really start to look at it, unless you can do a lot of it. You know, if you're an endurance athlete training three to four hours a day, you can burn a ton of calories. Someone working out for about an hour, yeah, it's, it's not a whole lot of calories. So, you know, if you're looking at, say, 15 to 16 calories a pound as maintenance, and, and that's sort of a – it's a sh rough average – you know, if you subtract, say, 20% from that, which is a fairly standard recommendation, 
If you take 15 calories a pound, 20% is three calories a pound. You subtract that, you end up at 12 calories a pound. That's just about right. Um, I do think in the modern world, I say I do think a lot of the old calorie numbers are a little bit high for a lot of people. You know, the the old like the old WHO numbers and stuff. They're like, oh, most people have a you know 1.7 multiplier per day. Maybe they used to. When you sit in front of a computer all day and don't do a whole hell of a lot except go to the gym for an hour, I find those numbers are often a little bit too high for people. But it's a good starting point. I have known people that had to go to 10 calories a pound um, when I was dieting even myself, even in my uh, my early 30s. You know, I sit in front of the computer most of the day. I was lifting weights two or three times a week. I was doing low intensity. I had to go to eight calories a pound to effectively lose fat. Now I was now I was lean, right? Realize I was like low teens going sub ten percent, and you're running into other issues. But frankly, my you know my my neat levels are very low. My overall activity was very low. Um, when you're only training, you know, lifting three times a week for an hour and, you know, walking on the treadmill, it just doesn't burn a lot of calories. Um, and frequently that's just the, the reality. You either have to increase your activity level um, or keep cutting calories if fat loss isn't occurring. But certainly, you know, for 12 calories a pound is, is a very much a good starting point. I'm great. I'm, I'm happy that I'm not too, too much of off base. So if we go to the next step uh, would be macronutrient intakes. Um, I want to start, maybe we can address all of them at once or one at a time, however you prefer. But let's start with protein because that's the most uh, important and most interesting one. And I'm, sh- I'm curious on your take on the whole uh, recomposition effect. We've seen the latest example was the uh, Bill Campbell study. I'm sure you've seen it. It was published a couple of weeks ago. Um, women resistance trained women it was um aspiring physique and i think from memory they compared was it 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilo or yeah 0.8 to 2.5 yeah and you know and those are admittedly some really extreme values you know 0.8 is sort of the old the old you know uh, RDA or DRI, you know the re- the recommended daily uh, uh, the the recommended daily allowance, um, which is definitely on the low end. But there are still people that adamantly maintain that that exercise does not increase protein requirements, which is just so laughably dumb. There might have been a case to be made twenty years ago, but the data the data is so profoundly pronounced in this. But and yeah, and what it found, you know, was that. Um, the women who ate the higher protein intake, you know, not only gained muscle far more effectively, I think they lost a little bit of body fat. Um, Jose Antonio has done a number of studies, mostly on men, uh, that has shown exactly the same, you know, the same effect that when you jack up protein intake, not only does the, the predicted fat gain not occur, but you frequently see fat loss. Now, now some of this is kind of complicated by, you know, these are, are not controlled calorie studies. Frequently when people eat a lot of protein, they eat less than the rest of it. But even that kind of makes the point that like if you want to increase your food intake from something and not only not risk fat gain, but even maybe generate kind of spontaneous fat loss, eat more protein. And I think this is really important, um, you know, to the, to the women's perspective, women frequently and some of this is biological and some of this is probably social or cultural women frequently don't have a real taste for protein foods men love protein men men will eat men love ketogenic diets man tell a man to eat nothing but protein and fat all day he's in heaven women tend to prefer carbs and fats 
and getting them to eat enough protein is frequently extremely difficult because they just don't, they, you know, maybe they didn't eat a lot of red, red meat when they were growing up or, you know, a lot of them tend to adopt vegetarian or vegan patterns. And it's hard to say if it's the biology driving the choice, the choice driving the rationalization or what. But all the studies just show exactly what you described is that eating, increasing protein intake has nothing but advantages. Um, tangentially, women also tend to make poor choices in their protein sort. They frequently, you know, they'll eliminate dairy for whatever reason, they'll eliminate red meat for whatever reason, and then they end up, you know, harming their iron, zinc, calcium intakes, and that causes its own set of problems with anemia, iron and zinc deficiency, lower metabolic rate, which I suddenly have all the women's attention um, when I mention that, that if you correct iron and zinc deficiency, metabolic rate goes up by several hundred calories a day. So that's a good reason to get those, those foods in. But yeah, so, so getting sufficient protein, especially with resistance training, and there was another paper that looked at that specific, I think it was in women and it was, they were dieting and it was like diet plus resistance training or diet without, or I forget what the details were, but basically diet plus resistance training and sufficient protein and they gained muscle while they lost fat. And it's like, there you go. There's the goal. Do, do that. Um, the, the problem with that, the study you're talking about is that we don't know what would have happened in the middle you know, there's kind of this big thing right now. It's like, ah, what are the upper limits? And, you know, 1.6 grams per kilo is getting thrown around and some stuff about maximum protein intake per, per meal. And we don't have time to really get into those details. But the, 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 the kind of the take-home point is that getting sufficient protein, like we talked about with, with the low-carb stuff earlier, to me that's the key. Right. In, in, in this book and, and, you know, if there's a single component I hope women internalize from this, this book I just wrote is that they need to get enough protein every day. Everything else is kind of negotiable. Like I don't I don't I, I'm not as concerned about the rest of it. It's important, but getting sufficient dietary protein, you know, the, there's a reason the word protein comes from the Greek word proteos, which means primary. It is the primary nutrient. Get that and the rest of this stuff stops mattering as much. Um, but, you know, with that study, like what if they, what if the group, maybe 1.8 would have been enough, maybe 1.6, maybe 2. We don't really know for sure. I tend to err on the side of too much rather than too little. Like I know what too little protein does negatively. Too much protein is rarely a problem unless it prevents them from eating enough of the other macronutrients to support training or fullness or food variety or whatever it is. But that really only occurs for smaller women on extreme diets. And even then, the leaner you get, the more protein you need. So you, you, women end up having to compromise frequently. They don't have calories to work with. But if they have to choose between sufficient protein and sufficient carbs, I'd rather see them get sufficient protein and work in, you know, refeeds or day maintenance or diet break or whatever. Like you can get the carbs in in other ways, but if you're not getting enough, if you're not getting enough protein, you're going to lose lean body mass. You're going to cause a lot more problems than you solve. So protein intake, I always set first. Any book of mine you look at, no matter how the diet is set up, I always set protein first because even if that means you don't get to eat enough of the other stuff, I don't care. Adequate protein intake, sufficient protein intake is the key component of the diet. Um, so that raises the question of how much. And that depends. It depends on things like what kind of training you're doing. Are you resistance training? Are you an endurance athlete? Are you sedentary? 
it depends a lot on body fat percentage, and that's that's really one of the key. That, and 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 sort of the short version is that the more fat you're carrying, the less protein you need, and vice versa. The leaner you get, the more protein you're going to require. And Eric Helms wrote an excellent review paper on this, and and showed that you know in lean physique athletes, and here we're talking about you know men below 10% body fat. We'd be talking about women who are 15% body fat and lower. We're talking about very lean, very lean physique contestants. You know, the men might, I think he had numbers up in, you know, the 3 to 3.3 gram per kilo, which is right about a gram and a half per pound, which I just want to note was in my protein book in, I want to say, 2007. So whenever I wrote that damn thing. So, yeah. Um, Women don't need as much as men for a couple of different reasons. Uh, they can generally get by with, you know, 15, 20% less than men on average. But even so, you know, a woman might be up at, you know, she, uh, a lean woman dieting might need three grams per, she might be looking at 1.4 grams per pound. And this is lean body mass, by the way, this is not total body weight. Whereas a heavier woman who's at 35% body fat she might only need a gram and a half per kilo, you know, so she's looking at 0.7 gram as far as a requirement. Now, she might want to eat more because, like I said, protein, the most hunger-blunting uh, nutrient of all, maintains blood sugar. Lehman did a bunch of work on that with dairy proteins back in the day. Um, has just more benefits than drawbacks, and it's rare to find someone who finds that eating more protein is a negative. In, in, in a dieting context. Um, it's been shown that even after a diet, if you start to regain body weight, if your protein intake is higher, more of the weight you gain is lean body mass. It will prevent you from gaining, regaining as much body fat if you're gaining, regaining weight. And that's even more so if you're, if you're training. So like there's just no disadvantage when you're dieting or even afterwards. Um, so we might be, again, so we're looking at a range for if you're a woman at say 16% body fat dieting down, you might need three grams per kilo of lean body mass. If you're a woman at 35% body fat, you might need a gram and a half per kilo. At 25% body fat, you're somewhere in between those two numbers. So you're looking at, you know, whatever, two to 2.2 gram. you know, the, the old gram a pound, which has been thrown around for years and years and years. So it's, it's kind of in that range. Um, so those are kind of the, the, the key components there. And again, I'm focusing mainly on fat loss here. You don't need quite as much when you're eating more calories, um, but again, it doesn't usually hurt to have a little bit more, if for no other reason than the, the appetite blooding effect. So that that's where where I would tend to set protein. So if we touch on the uh, rest of the two macronutrients, I um, I set fat intake around one gram per kilo, 0.8 grams per kilo, something like that, and then the rest are taken up by carbs. Um, do you agree with those numbers? And the uh, second part of the question, do you like to manipulate it based on training or rest days? Because, for example, this small female, poor, poor, poor girl, she has like 25 grams of carbs left on <laughs> rest days because... The rest, uh, I prefer to increase her carb intake on workout days. She lives five times a week, so. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, and it's it's um, so so you know, first on the fat and in, fat intake thing, and this is another place you do find a lot of women living on carbs, right? They they kind of mentally, protein is not good either because it will you know make them bulky or because it comes with too many too much dietary fat, which is a weird idea. Like, there's plenty of very lean proteins, you know, lean chicken breast 
canned tuna fish, even red meat, you can get very lean cuts of. So this idea that, that protein and fat are equated is always, I find a little bit baffling. Um, or there's, then they want to cut dietary fat out because, oh, fat makes you fat. Well, you get, you can gain fat just as easily on, on lots of carbs if you eat enough of them. Um, there are other good reasons, you know, there's, some indication that, you know, too low dietary fat may have an independent effect on women losing their menstrual cycle. Um, I mean, it can be beneficial. Very low fat intakes can decrease estrogen levels, which is maybe good from a long-term breast cancer risk standpoint. Um, women who have, you know, really bad PMS may feel a little bit better for those reasons, but women, lean women who are dieting are already at risk of losing their menstrual cycle, and we won't have time to get into that. Too, too little dietary fat can contribute to that. So I like to see kind of a happy medium value, you know, and that one gram per kilo will probably on average work out to, you know, 25%, 20, 25% dietary fat, depending on calorie levels, you know, it might be a little bit higher for calories or lower, it might be a little bit lower for calories or higher, but it's in that range. And I, I don't really like dietary percentages, but with fat, we're kind of, that's all we're really left with. And that gives, you know, that's, that's a nice, happy medium. You know, a lot of people will hear, oh my God, you know, for that hundred kilo woman you're describing, you know, that's, oh my God, that's 45 grams of fat. Well, yeah, but across four meals, that's 10 grams of fat. That's a very moderate intake. And that's enough to, you know, control blood sugar, uh, maintain fullness, load gastric emptying and digestion, which helps keep you full in the longer term. Like, but for someone who's used to eating 20 grams a day, 45 grams of fat is just like, oh my God. And it's like, that's nothing. That's two tablespoons of peanut butter. That's two, like, that's a very, very small fat intake. But when people are used to eating, trying to get none, it allows more food flexibility, more food variability, which is important from an inherent standpoint, lets you get your essential fat, you know. So, so yeah, I think that's a very reasonable number. Now, towards the end of a diet, and again, we're talking lean, extreme lean physique athletes. You kind of hit this point where you have so few calories to work with that you have to make a choice because either carbs are going to come down super low and they may end up below 100 grams a day. Fat because protein can't be changed. That you don't. That's not an option. If anything, it may have to go up as you get super lean as calories are coming down, and this leaves less room for everything else. So fat intake may reach a point where it has to come below that. And I know there's a value in my book that I don't even remember what it is. It's basically like a minimum fat requirement, and I got that from Eric Helms, who was a co-contributor. Yeah, I think it was 0.5. Yeah, and, and, like, and you just reach a point where you got to do what you got to do. Again, we're talking about women at 12%, 13% body fat. This is not going to apply to the majority of female dieters. This is the 1% of the 10% of the whatever. Um, but you may reach that point. Um and like you said, that leaves carbs. So you, you kind of, again, if you look at the way I set up most of my diets, protein comes first, you need to get sufficient fat, then carbs are what's left. Now, if you have a very high calorie intake, very high energy expenditure, your carb intake may still be very high, right? Uh, there's a case study in the woman's book or that I mentioned, and it was a female cyclist who was working with Louise Burke at the, the Australian Institute of Sport, and she had gotten injured, needed to lose fat, get back in shape, and they set her to a very moderate deficit. And on some of her calories, on some of her days, she was eating 3,000 calories a day, but she was also riding her bike for five hours, right? She was doing two five-hour bike rides a week. That is burning a staggering number of calories. If you're lifting weights for an hour, an hour and a half, you're not getting anywhere close to that. So, you know, physique athletes or lean women who are only, you know, they're going to, like, 
say, a 100 kilo woman, sorry, 100 pounds, a 45 kilo woman, sorry, am I right? So 100 pounds at 12 calories a pound, that's 1,200 calories, right? If her protein intake is already 150 grams at 600 calories, she's got 600 calories left to split between carbs and fat. This is not a lot of calories, right? And this is the reality of being a smaller woman who's not doing a tremendous amount of activity. And, you know, like I said, endurance athletes, different thing. If you're a performance athlete, you're training four hours a day, it's a very different situation. But carbs just end up being the difference. And they may end up being 80 to 100 grams. On a high activity day, you might end up at, you know, a gram to a gram and a half per pound. And it's interesting that, you know, before body, before we knew anything, bodybuilders did develop a lot of stuff very, exper you know, experientially. And an old dieting number for carbs about a gram a day, or sorry, a gram per pound per day. And again, if you're probably more appropriate for a bigger male, because if you're a 180 pound male, you're burning more calories than everything. You've got more to work with. Smaller females, even a gram a pound is not a lot of carbs, right? 100 grams of carbs a day is right on that cutoff of of being ketogenic, of causing some problems. And going back to the fat intake, women may reach a point where if they know that it's, say, 90 grams of carbs a day, they just feel terrible. They, they get that keto fog and that, that just brain, that they may need to, it, they may benefit from reducing their fat intake a little bit to give themselves more room for carbs, right? If they cut their fat intake by 10 grams, that gives them 100 calories, that lets them eat 25 more carbs a day, that may be just enough to keep them out of that, you know, what for them may be a problem zone. And I'm not saying it will be for all women, but you reach that point for smaller women without a lot of calories to work with that you might have to compromise something. The danger becoming, okay, well, if that's too low, might get into menstrual cycle function issues or sustainability. If carbs are too low, training performance might suffer. What are you going to do? Well, <laughs> stop dieting, Stop dieting. <laughs> do more activity. You know, this is where you get into some of the cyclical dieting structures where, you know, and, and, and the, the benefit of like weight training athletes, like physique athletes, or if all you're doing is kind of like a lot of weight training, typically you're not doing a staggering, if you're doing a staggering volume of training in a day, if you're just like doing, you know, the 20 sets for chest, you're only doing it once a week. So if you deplete your chest muscles or your chest and shoulders of glycogen, it doesn't really matter. You're not training again the next day, right? Endurance athletes have a very, you know, a, a cyclist is riding every day. A runner is running every day. If they deplete their muscle glycogen on Monday, they may be screwed on a Tuesday. People lifting weights are typically rotating their body parts, or if they're not even training full body, they're not training super high volume. So it kind of balances out. But that's when you get into, okay, we're going to have a harder diet day, but you're going to have a day at maintenance calories or do, you know, a quote-unquote refeed where you're going to bump carbs to 2 grams per pound to refill muscle glycogen, maybe reset hormones, and make it so you can get through your next training week, basically. So you end up with, the, you know, at that point, you're ending up with some cyclical dieting structures. But, yeah, so to your point, carbs should scale with activity in the sense that, energy expenditure is scaling with activity, right? So if you've got someone on a rest day and their total daily energy expenditure is 14 calories a pound and they're dieting at 12, well, there's not going to be a lot of difference. They're not going to get to eat that many more carbs. However, if they've got a super high activity day and suddenly their total their daily energy spend is 20 calories a pound, well, boom, you can bring carbs up significantly and still maintain the same deficit. 
just because they're burning more calories. And it, and it's really funny, right? For for decades, you know, I've been doing this since shit ninety five. You know, and and the carb requirements were just set. I athletes need ten to twelve grams per kilo a day. Well, that came from endurance athletes doing four hours of, of training a day. And it was a ridiculous number, unless you were an endurance athlete doing four hours of exercise a day. And it's taken them like three decades of looking at this. Finally, the carb intake recommendations are being set relative to activity. And it's like, oh, easy day, two grams per kilo, two to two, two and a half, one to 1.2 grams per pound. If you're doing four hours on the bike with intervals, you might need 12 grams per kilo. But guess what? You're burning 3,000 calories in that training session. And everything in the middle is somewhere in between. So if you're doing, you know, an hour hard or two hours easy, you might be five to six grams per kilo. So you're at two and a half to three. Again, we're looking, these are like maintenance levels. Obviously, we're going to reduce this for dieting. But yeah, finally, sports nutrition has realized that, huh. And, and also they've realized that different sports might have different requirements. Like, what a novel concept, right? I seriously used to see dietitians, if you were a track sprinter, a power lifter, or a distance runner, you got the same diet. And that's just asinine, right? They have, we were talking about different bioenergetic, bioenergetic pathways. Sprinters run for six seconds and then stand around for 10 minutes. Powerlifters do a set of five and then stand around for 10 minutes. Distance runners overtrain for two hours every day. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> to, to give them the same diet in terms of protein, carbs, and fat, and calories is just asinine. And finally, we're seeing more work, and they're like, okay, Right, you've got endurance athletes always have the highest. Uh, you know, the strength power sports, throwers, shot putters, power lifters, Olympic lifters, they're doing a rep or two at a time. How much how many carbohydrates are they using? Damn little. Right. If you and the athletes knew this intuitively. The athletes in the seventies and eighties were like tried to follow the high carb diets for the endurance athletes and they felt terrible. They they had no energy, they were lethargic. They knew they needed more protein and less carbs. And it just took science twenty years to catch up. Physique athletes tend to burn proportionally more bodybuilders, more than, say, power. They're doing higher volume training, higher repetitions. They're using more carbohydrate. So you go from, you know, two to three grams per kilo, maybe to three to four or five you know, maintenance levels. We're talking maybe, you know, two, two and a half grams per pound. The endurance guys, again, they're at the far other extreme. They may be doing eight to 10, 10 to 12 on a regular basis. There's all these weird sports in the middle. Mixed sports, team sports, you know, volleyball is different than basketball, is different than soccer, is different than field hockey. Those sports are a little bit harder, but mostly you see these kind of, eh, four to six grams per kilo. You kind of just go with, well, are they gaining weight? Are they losing weight? You kind of scale it that way. So we're finally starting to see these, these specific recommendations, but it absolutely should. If all you do is a 30-minute walk, you don't need many carbs. If you're going to do a two-hour heavyweight training session, your carb requirements will be higher. But again, it gets factored in if you're altering calorie intakes. If you're adjusting calorie intake down for a mate for a, an off day versus a training day, and you're setting diet by setting protein and setting fat at fairly fixed levels, carbs should simply scale with calorie intake. So it should almost it almost kind of factors itself in, or it works, or rather it works itself out, um, just the way the math works. 
Yeah, it's so crazy that I'm in a master's program right now and we had an exam just a couple of weeks ago and they had a question how much carbs or what percentage of the calories that carbs represent and the answer they were looking for was 65%. Like just a black and white answer that was like... What the yeah, and, and, but that's just been the way it's been done for as long, you know, like I said, in, in the research and, more, you know, in the more cutting edge, more modern sports nutrition books, you don't see that. But in, you know, that's just the old school approach approach 65 percent carbs well where did this number come from just did you know or it's just like and you see the same number for the general public it's just there's like this idea of this standard diet template that somehow applies across the board and it doesn't make any sense on any level um I remember years ago I got in an argument when this is when low carb diets made sort of their first re-resurgence in the 90s and you know I was arguing with one of the, the high-carb people, and he, and I was like, look, if someone's only, if they're inactive, they're overweight and they're inactive, for all they're doing is low-intensity activity, how many carbs do they need? His response was, well, they should just be more active. So in his mind, there was the single diet that we should force the person to make themselves appropriate for, rather than make the diet appropriate. And I just find, and again, the keto people do it at the other extreme. You know, like I said, if you're insulin resistant and doing nothing but low intensity work, I have no problem. Ketogenic low carb diet's probably going to be very appropriate for you. If you are a high level athlete, you're not going to have a good time, but they don't see it. And, and so this guy's just the opposite extreme. Well, high carb is the default diet. Well, why? Why, why is this de facto, why is this, this intractable approach where this is the only diet and we have to make everyone fit it? Why not make the diet fit the person in the context? Cutting edge, I know, but it's really, and it, it, and I joke, but there's still people that just can't see it that way. They can't see that, ah, maybe the context, maybe the amount and type and volume of training and your body fat. And, you know, we will get to the point there will be this diet genotype interaction. <clears throat> we're not there yet, but we're going to be able to do, you know, there's, so there's some early work on genetic testing where they're like, ah, if we set the diet up to a degree along with their genetics, they get better results. And, and it's hard to say what's driving the bus. Is it physiological? Is it psychological? Is there a difference? You know, if, if we could predict ahead of time what diet someone could best adhere to, that would be a step, uh, an unbelievable step in a positive direction. Just to somehow figure out, and like whether it's, you know, personality-based or genetic-based or whatever, to determine, okay, this person is not going to do well, you know, or whatever baseline insulin secretion. And there's been some work that people that are insulin hyper responders, like, you know, this early insulin response, they seem to do better with one approach versus or whatever it is. But we will get to that, hopefully get to that point where we can do a much better job ahead of time of knowing what at least might work best for somebody um, behaviorally or otherwise, just like with, and we'll get the same, I think we'll get to the same place with exercise. You know, there's some early work on genotype and, you know, ACE and the ACT gene and all this other, the, whatever, the ACTN, whatever it is. And, you know, I've seen people, there's some groups that are trying to be like, oh, we can give you a genetically optimized workout for your, yeah, not yet. We'll get, we'll get there. I will, once the science is more well-developed, I think we'll have a, a, at least a better starting point. 
Um, so I think all of these things, but, but yeah, but yeah, getting back to the point is just that you have these folks going, oh, there's the diet. Let's just make everyone fit into it rather than the other way around. There is some early work, for example, the 23ME. There is the MTHFR mutations are pretty well uh, established right now. I have a client who has the pretty much the worst, the one worst uh, SNP. And uh, for him, it's it's very easy to just supplement with some methylfolate and some B12, and that's probably going to improve his health. Well, so. like, even with me, so you know, I this was uh, end of 2014. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, bipolar two, which is like the bipolar light, essentially. And the place I went for treatment, they actually did an, like there there's some early genetic markers for mental illnesses and mental health. And it turns out that I have what's called the MTHFR mutation, which I think is hilarious because it looks like motherfucker. And but what it is is it's an inability, and it's apparently very common in Middle Easterners. Is and I only had one one mutation, but I have a an impairment. My ability to make folic acid and methylfolate is impaired by thirty percent, and this happens to be critically important for. Uh, it's very involved in various types of mental illness because methyl methylfolate is the form that's used in the brain. So presumably, if you have this mutation, you have a poor lower. And so they actually gave me a medical methylfolate supplement called Deplin. It's just 15 milligrams of preformed methylfolate. And, you know, I can't say that it's, you know, I'm on that plus uh, an actual medication. But it, it's it's one of those things that having identified that, clearly this was, you know, they've, they're, there's others they've identified that I didn't have. Like one, for example, was had to do with liver metabolism of drugs. And some people have, you know, faster, whatever, probably cytochrome P450, whichever one it is, and they metabolize drugs more quickly. Well, that mean, that has implications for their dosing schedule or their dosing amount. Because if they're metabolizing the drug out 50% faster, that means the drug is not in their system. There's another one they found and uh, had to do with weight gain from from uh, a lot of these medications can be very severe. And one of the mutations they found had something to do with the inositol pathway. And so they found that for those people supplementing, I think, one of the inositols, either myo-inositol or chiro-inositol, prevents the weight gain. So, like, we are fun we're getting to this point where, yes, you can do some of these things and determine whether it's diet or supplementation or medication or whatever it is to to sort of to be to be it's very it's very much in in the early stages but like nutrigenomics and physiogenomics and all that other stuff we're going to get there it it may be a decade before we have you know and and every with every year we'll find new models and new mutations that'll feed into this it's going to take a while to get the full picture but we will get there <clears throat> certainly and i think it will allow the treatment for a lot of this stuff to move beyond you know eat less exercise and come to a meeting once a week not that that won't still be the basis of it but knowing what approach physiologically or psychologically, you know, and, and even in my mind, finding the better physiological approach because it fits someone's appetite, hunger, you know, whatever it is, that often addresses some of the psychological stuff, right? As much as anything, you know, like you said with, with this, uh, the low-carb, low-fat thing we looked at, dropout in diet studies is usually staggering and even if they hadn't seen any other observation, if they found an approach that shows a lower dropout rate for one group versus the other or for a given approach, that's almost as important as the actual weight loss 
because more the more if you're losing 35% because the diet can't be adhered to or people but that that's almost the more important observation to me okay why why are we seeing in a, in a group of people that presumably want to to lose weight and reach their goals why are we seeing such a high attrition rate maybe that's where we need to focus first um Going back to the women's stuff, there's a, a, a study that came out last year that it, it came out, I'd written this big-ass chapter about setting up the diet for different parts of the menstrual cycle and all this other stuff, and um, then this paper came out, and I was very happy because it basically came to the same conclusions I had, and it was called the menstrualine study, and what it did was it compared sort of the stock standard government recommend, recommended diet to a diet that was based around the menstrual cycle, altering carb intake, fat intake, exercise type during the luteal phase when, when cravings are up, but metabolic rate is up, it added, allowed them to have a little dark chocolate, um, kind of a flexible dieting thing. And among other observations, and well, number one, like the most adherent women lost like five kilos more in, in the, the intervention group versus the standard diet. But of, of almost more importance was that the women in the, the intervention diet, the menstrualine diet, showed much lower attrition rates. It was like 37 versus 61% or something in that. Like when, and, and yes, it was still high in both, but like you said, that's common to all diet studies. What was interesting is that there was a far lower attrition rate, and it's because the women reported they just not only were their results better, it you know whatever their appetite was better controlled, allowing them to work that dark chocolate, and when they're having cravings anyway, like taking these things into account allowed the women to be more adherent. And even if the diet hadn't been physiologically superior in any way, if it let them stick to it better, well, boom, there's your better results. It was just simply that altering the diet to fit their physiology was what improved their adherence because it fit them better. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So finding, figuring that stuff out ahead of time, unfortunately, we, we, we can't yet. Right now we're at a point where it's like, oh, try this, didn't work, let's try something else. And you're, you're having to do it like with coaching. I remember one of my coaches said, you know, it takes me about a year to figure out how to train somebody. Because you have to figure out what their response is. Well, that's a year lost. If there were some way to ahead of time go, oh, this is what this person will respond to physiologically or psychologically or whatever, that would be a huge step forward. We don't have it yet, but we will eventually, I think. Yeah, I, ho I hope so too. So do you think it's, um, uh, it's going to be superior or at least recommended to vary macronutrient based on workout and rest days or even perhaps more importantly for moon based on the menstrual cycle um, phase? I mean, they all kind of interact, right? So in, in the book, um, you know, I, I sort of, in the first half of the cycle when women are, are more insulin sensitive, I recommend slightly higher carbs, slightly lower fats. In the second half of the cycle when they're more insulin resistant, a little bit higher fat, a little bit lower carbs. The differences aren't staggering, right? Like I recommend like 25% fat in the first half of the cycle and it goes up to like 30 to 35%. And if you, if you run the numbers on typical diets, we're looking at, a, you know, the dietary fat change, it's like 20 grams and that means you get, you know, 40 whatever, 25 to 50 grams less of carbohydrate. Like it's not, it's not enormous. And to a degree, it's probably maybe overwhelmed a little bit by training, but that's going to be changing too, right? So let's say we get into, you know, in the first half of the cycle, she's on 
whatever, say 200 grams of carbs on a training day and 150 on a rest day, whatever, whatever the numbers work out to. Well, in the second half, it might come down to 160 and 120 or 150 and 100. Like, again, I'd have to whatever the numbers work out to. So it, it, it's kind of both. I don't know if one is necessarily there, – there's also the fact that when you get into lower calorie ranges, the numbers you're working with are so paltry to begin with. Um, I, I, I looked at several case studies of, of there's been a number on, on female physique athletes and, you know, and if you look at, at their average numbers, cause they were all eating protein in about the three to 3.3 gram per kilo range and their fat intake varied. It was, you know, usually 35 to 50 grams a day. I was right in that range and their carb intake. It was like, I think the lowest I remember was like 80 and like the highest, you know, was maybe 130. Like you get to a point at that point in the diet for smaller women that the differences are so negligible, you know, that you're, you're looking at 20 to 25 grams of carbohydrates either direction. And this is especially for the physique athlete simply because the difference between a rest day and a training day, if all you're doing is lifting weights for an hour, is only about 300 calories. You know, you're, you're not looking at more than, than, you know, what is that, 60 to 70, maybe 70 grams of carbs a day if you're lucky. Endurance athletes probably see the biggest variance is, you know, if you're looking at a five-hour bike ride versus a one-hour bike ride, now you're looking at 1,500 calorie difference in calorie expenditure. Now you're looking at 400 grams of carb difference. But for the, the person who's just like a recreational exerciser lifting weights four or five times a week or three or four times a week or whatever, the differences in a rest day and a training day just aren't that big. Um, so you're just not seeing the, the, the differentials in macronutrient intake. They're just not that big um, just because the total because energy expenditure day to day just isn't changing that much. There was the I heard you mention this to the anabolic diet or whatever it was called, who implemented similar strategies of fluctuating uh, energy intake between rest and workout days to potentially give some superior outcomes. Yeah, you know, there's kind of been you know you, you get into so, sort of some of the like the every other day type dieting where you diet hard one day and then you eat a little bit more on training days to maybe get some recomposition and you know the, the way I set up diets because I you know. It's, you end up having to kind of cyclically diet because you have that you have to figure out that compromise between being in a deficit but sustaining training and you run into a point where you you kind of can't do both unless you really reduce training significantly and a lot of people don't want to do that because then you end up chasing your tail because now you're reducing your energy expenditure further and calories have to come down further and you end up just kind of like chasing this circle so, you know, what I end up typically, which you usually end up doing is like, all right, early in a diet, you're dieting for six days, and then you have a day at maintenance. Refill carbohydrates, give your body a break, give your mind a break, let cortisol come back down, et cetera, et cetera. As you get leaner, and here I'm talking, you know, 15 to 20% body fat, you may be dieting for five days a week and then eating at maintenance too. Now, the anabolic diet or body opus, you did, you know, Monday through Friday dieting, and then you ate... Saturday, Sunday, you know, my own ultimate diet too was very similar structure. And then, you know, towards the very end of a, of a again, we're, now we're sub 15% for a woman. You're talk, you're looking at, you know, maybe four hard dieting days and three days of maintenance. So now you're starting to see bigger differentials and you can sequence that with training. You can put the, the maintenance days on the, the heavier training days or on your only training days, you know, depending on how many days you train or whatever it is. Um, so you, you start to see, 
bigger, uh, almost bigger fluctuations later in the diet simply because you're having to do more to adjust for, you know, metabolic slowdown and hormonal adaptation and all that other stuff. Um, so that, you know, so that is certainly one way to approach it. And a lot of people find that's like, you know, the, the intermittent calorie restriction approaches, which I really do think are the future of dieting, mainly because I've been writing about them since 2004. But I do think there's a lot to be said, you know, the data's they're at least as good, and I think in some cases they're better. And so rather than dieting the same for seven days a week at a 25% deficit, you do a couple of hard diet days, like 50% deficit, and then you do a normal eating day, and that breaks this, you know, you, the, there's kind of a lag time when you start dieting. You don't really start to see that hunger until about day three or four. And because there's like, it sort of takes the brain time to, to sense it. Well, then if you maybe if you raise calories on day three, you don't overeat because you're not super hungry yet. You can just eat normally and train a little bit harder. And then you have a couple hard diet days. And, and, and if you math it out, and I did this in the book, you end up like if you if you look at like seven moderate dieting days versus four hard dieting days and three normal eating days, you end up with about the same weekly deficit. Depending, depending on you know what the numbers work out to, but it, it it kind of balances out. So it's like, well, for a lot of people, I think the four hard dieting days because you can anybody can diet hard for a day. I'm gonna diet hard for a day or two. Hell, you can not eat for a day and you won't die. You'll you may not be happy, but you'll be fine. Then, you, but but knowing that you get to eat normally in a couple of days removes a lot of the psychological stress. Uh, you're like, okay, well, I can be a little hungry for a couple days. Then I get to eat normally. I can go out. I can train more effectively. I might be able to have dinner with my family. And then I go back to dieting. Now, for other people, it doesn't work, right? That's a psychological thing. Some people start to become a weird binge purge pattern and looks like an eating disorder. And, and they, they find that that normal eating day, they either binge or they can't get back on the diet. Like it doesn't, it's not inherently superior for everybody. But I think for, you know, conceptually, if I said, all right, you're going to diet seven days a week without a break. Well, that means you're dieting with no break ever. If I tell you you're dieting six days, then you get a day of eating normally. Well, now you'll have to diet for six days in a row. There's always, there's always a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And if I say, well, I want you to eat at maintenance Wednesday and Sunday, I'm like, well, shit, I can diet Monday and Tuesday. I can diet Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Anybody can diet for two or three days. Um, what's funny, I've got an old, 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 old book, like 19, late seventies, early eighties diet book. It's called the wild weekend diet. And its premise was that you dieted hard during the week and ate normally on the weekend. And I'm like, man, there's nothing new. Um, but it was based around that same concept. And it's like to tell someone you can never have something again is impossible Tell someone you may not have to, can't have it for a few months is doable. Tell someone, yeah, you get to, can't have this for five days. Pfft, okay. I mean, I can have a little on six, six day. Yeah, a little. Cool. Easy. And I, I think that, I think that, that, I just tend to, for the average dieter, it doesn't have to be quite as structured. When you start to get into lean dieters on time frames and stuff, you have to start being much more structured in how you apply it. Um, but I, I think we're going to start to see more and more data on that intermittent calorie restriction where you're not dieting every single day. They will be found to be generally superior um, for a majority of people. Yeah, unfortunately, we have to end it here. But uh, if there is one message that people can take away is that 
there is no one fits all universal solution for everyone and it really is about finding a sweet spot between actually getting results because uh, that's the issue with the message that uh, follow diet you can stick to like people can stick to a five six thousand calorie junk food diet no problem but they also need results so well, I, you know and I, I, I think usually when that's said it's just like you know find something that you know controls your calories and is calorie restricted or you know we've we've been, we've had the diet wars going on for 30 years and if any diet were inherently superior to any other we'd know by now because if there were a single, you know, just like with the training wars and the HIT and volume and this and that and the other, there were a single way of setting up training that was the was truly better across the board. We'd have found it by now. What you instead see is that there are general principles that always hold, and how you how you uh, use them or how you apply them in any given situation depends on the context, the needs, the requirements, and also the individual. And one thing I'd add, just because this is kind of a current current thing of mine that I need to, to write down, I've talked about it on the podcast, is I, I tend to, I think training and dieting, and maybe dieting more so than training, people need to, it, it needs to be thought of as a, it's a learning process. Because there are so many different ways to do things. Intermittent fasting, eating six meals a day, eating four meals a day, alternate day fasting, intermittent calorie restriction, cyclical dieting, carb cycling, low carb, low fat, high carb, moderate fat, zone, whatever. There's a million different approaches. And I can, on any one of those, I can find 100 people that had the best results ever on it, 100 people that met, and 100 people that failed. What does that tell me? They, the people who succeeded, either found their way to it or got lucky. The people who didn't succeed were trying to follow something that wasn't right for them. And make no mistake, I'm not saying that the, you know, some dieters just fail. They, you can fail the diet, but frequently the diet fails the dieter. And what happens is people, they're told, you intermittent fasting is the best. Okay, great. And they try it and they fail. Well, it means I'm a failure. Well, no, it means intermittent fasting wasn't for you. I've tried it. I can make intermittent fasting work sometimes. And other times I will end up at the buffet eating too much. Depends on how I do it. Does that... Now, somebody will hear me say that and go, oh, Lyle, Lyle says intermittent fasting sucks. No, Lyle does not say that. Lyle says intermittent fasting sucks for Lyle. Those are different things, but people don't tend to hear me when I say that. Intermittent fasting works fantastically for a large number of people, and it works spectacularly poorly for a large number of people. The people who like it and who love it and who find that it works, go with God. I'm happy for you. But the people who are failing, who it's not working for, who can't make it work, who think that they're in the wrong, those are the people that I care about. So when you make a mistake, when you try a new strategy, if it doesn't work, first analyze why it didn't work. Right for me, if if I'm in fast, if my first meal I eat, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, and I have a turkey sandwich and a glass, of, I'm fine. If I fall into the trap of I'm going to wait a couple more hours and wait a couple more hours, boom, screw it, I'm going to the buffet. That's the pattern for me. Even with flexible dieting, I love flexible dieting. I wrote one of the first books on it in 2004, and people are still ripping me off. However. I cannot keep certain foods in the house. I've learned this the hard way. If I have a bag of cookies in the house, I will eat a bag of cookies. If I want to have a treat, if it fits your macros or whatever, I have to get dressed, go to the store, I will buy exactly what I intend to eat and no more. Because when I've done it any way, other way, 
it didn't work for me. Am I saying flexible dieting is bad? Of course not. Am I saying infants or mattress is bad? Absolutely not. I'm saying that if I don't do it, as, but I had to learn that over many failed experiences. So whenever you do something and try the new magic strategy, if it didn't work, examine why, right? Ah, I was going to intermittent fast to go to the dinner party, and I ate all the cake. Well, maybe waiting to eat the one meal is not right for you. Learn from that. Try it again the next time. Have a snack an hour out. Maybe when you get there, fill up on lean protein and vegetables. Ah, still failed? All right, try it one more time. Try one other approach. Didn't work? Screw it. Move on. Move on and do something else. It's not that you're a failure. This is not a good strategy for you. In every aspect of diet, if you go, fine, I'm going to try. I see people, oh, yep, I'm my third run of rapid fat loss. Um, you should not do rapid fat loss. It's, it's a good diet when it works. And, when it, and like the fact that you've had to do it three times, it's not right for you. Do something, you know, and that that's, would be a good rule. If you tried something three times and it's had the same negative result, it's not for you. Or maybe it's not for you now. And I talk about this in the women's book, and, and my view on flexible dieting has changed a lot from when I was younger. I like, I think free meals are great. I think refeeds are great. I think diet breaks are great. I think if it fits your macros, is great when it works. And, but I think people forget, if you have a decade of rigid food control, and you know exactly what you're eating, and you have good food control, it's very easy to do those things. To tell the average overweight person with two decades of bad eating, whose taste buds have adapted, who may have food triggers, that a weekend they should go ahead and allow themselves. Now, it may work. Am I saying if it fits your macros is bad? No. It's great when it works. But perhaps for the beginner who has some food control issues, it's not an appropriate initial strategy. Should they try it? Sure. And if it blows them up, if they get kicked off their diet, if they end up binging, maybe it's not a good approach for them. Or maybe it's not a good approach for them now. Maybe three months from now, after they've lost some weight, after they're on a regular exercise program, after they've established new food habits, after they've got more mindfulness about their food intake, maybe now they try it again. Maybe now it works for them. So what is not an appropriate strategy for someone now, maybe later, or again, we'll finish by going back to this study. It started people on a very extreme diet and then said, we want you to reintroduce these foods to find sustainability. Now, they might not have been able to do that initially, Obviously, by cutting their carbs out completely, that works great in, in the initial stages. Now, we're three months down the road. We're six months down the road. Now that you've established better eating habits and your taste buds, it takes about four to six weeks for taste buds to change. Maybe now you can start reintroducing foods one at a time. And if you, eat a, and you bring a food in and it's a trigger, well, then there's lots of other carb sources. There's no food you have to eat carbohydrate-wise, find the ones that you can eat in a controlled fashion, that's learning. And every time you do that, you make a mistake, you learn from it, you correct it, and it may take a year, it may take two years, it may take six months. You will find a set of strategies for yourself that allow you long-term maintenance. That's what people need to be worrying about rather than what the single magic approach is, you know, that's worked for, yeah, great, if carbohydrate cycling worked for you, fan-fucking-tastic. That doesn't make it the right diet for everybody. And, but that's what people forget. And people get so locked into that. So that's, that's kind of, I think, the place to finish, is not only is there not any one approach, but figuring out what set of strategies is appropriate for you 
takes time. And again, when you fail, and this is, I got this out of the addiction literature, right? When you have a, a, a violation of what you're trying to do, if you beat yourself up over it and see it as a moral failure, drug addicts are much more likely to um, resume their drug use. If they see it as a learning experience, right? You're an alcoholic, you're trying to quit. You go, oh, I'll just go to the bar. I'll go, I'll go, I can go to the bar. I'm going to join my buddies at the bar. And then you wake up three days later after being blackout drunk, you've just learned a very valuable lesson. And you can learn, you can parse that one of two ways. You can parse that as I'm a failure or you can parse that as, you know, I'm not going to the bar again because I clearly can't be in that environment. And approaching it the second way as a learning experience of what not to do going forwards, that's how you eventually will f come across, come up with the 10 rules or whatever that work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I've done podcasts with um, Albert Chaboy on intuitive eating. I've done one with Trevor Johnson on alcohol addiction and the similarity to food addiction and all that stuff. So people can check those out if they are interested. So as anticipated, I uh, we have gone through like a third of the <laughs> topics I wanted to go <laughs> through. So, but it was this was great, and um, I will make sure to link uh, your book and um, your well, have a Facebook group. That would be an issue because I'm banned. Oh, okay, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, whatever. Don't even remember. I've banned. I've banned. Lo I've banned lots of people. So all right, I can go and ban you. Okay, so that was episode 22 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with Lyle McDonald. I hope you enjoyed it and um, learned something from it, which I am almost 100% sure that you did. Now, I will not uh, do my usual summary because uh, towards the end of the episode, I actually kind of summarized what uh, we discussed there, so I think it would be a bit uh, redundant. I did want to leave that part about me banning about uh, him banning me from his group in because I thought it was funny and it perfectly describes the way Lyle acts online. However, like I said, he's a really cool guy um, uh, in a one-to-one -one conversation, so that's good. Before we end the episode, I want to give a quick uh, shout-out to our sponsors, which is me. But seriously, this podcast is made by me and... Um, Given that, I would uh, highly appreciate if you could share it with someone, if you could um, tag me in your Instagram stories, in your Instagram posts, if you want to share it, something like that. As always, any kind of feedback and opinions are welcome. If you'd like, you can leave the podcast a review on iTunes. That would help too. And um, if you think I'm not a complete idiot and would be interested in working with me in a one-to-one -one capacity, now is the time to sign up if you want to lose fat for summer or get bigger for summer or something along those lines. So in the eventuality, my um, social media profiles are in the description and I'm pretty easy to find, so don't hesitate to reach out. That being said, I'll call it today. Thank you again for listening and... Until next week, go crush it.